All right. Well, absolutely. Um, you know, our thoughts all week have been with uh, with the Moore family and with Nancy and Ben. And um, and again, I just my thoughts keep thinking as I'm doing this study that, you know, not perfectly because we never do. But Nancy was in so many ways uh, edified of what we are talking about this month, which is walking in a manner worthy of a calling. And what strikes me and when somebody like Nancy goes home or somebody like Jane goes home to be with the Lord, that walk of faith um, is such a, a great source of comfort for us because when they're faithful, when you see repentance, when you see humility, when you see gentleness and kindness in somebody's life, it's such a great source of comfort for us who are still here because it gives us assurance of their salvation as well. And, uh, and I think about that, how, um, how unfortunate it would be to go home in a car accident when you were just in a massive fight with your wife and, uh, or in, in the middle of a, a long bout of secret sin that comes to light. Those types of things would, um, would cause seeds of doubt to be in those who are left behind. And that's something we can think about as we're endeavoring to walk worthy, uh, not only for ourselves, not only for the glory of the Lord, but as we think about framing this in a, in a context of unity, also for those who are here and left behind, and, and what does our walk do to encourage other people and to um, establish uh, a sound expectation and, and assurance of, of our salvation? Uh, so, so we continue to pray for Nancy's family, and Nancy, though, is home, and so she would say, don't worry about me. I'm good to go. So, um, and she's enjoying the Savior now. So with, uh, with that, we'll go ahead and jump in here to um, something that I've been encouraged by. And as it turns out, you know, whenever you get into studying something and you're getting ready, especially to teach, I find the Lord um, makes sure that you understand and grasp the context, that you're, the content that you're getting ready to deal with. And so I have, as it turns out, have struggled with humility these last couple of days. Uh, so... It is with that sense of irony that I get a chance to preach on humility. I think the Lord has such a great sense of humor in his sanctification process, although it's not funny. Um, So let's jump into this real quick here and say um, that we stated last time, we've got our slides, that's great. We stated last time that one of the key points to walking worthy is understanding that the goal to this pursuit is really unity, and that's really what jumped out at me as I was studying this, and there's a thousand different ways you can go into Ephesians, and you can start with a number of premises, and you can extract um, a number of themes throughout, but really this idea of the pursuit of unity among the church body was really just what kept jumping out at me. Um, unity among the church as a whole, and then within individual relationships that exist among each member of the body. Remember we said that, that the church is really comprised of the body of Christ, and the head of that body is Christ. And, um, and so the relationships that exist among those, uh, you, if you have certain appendages, appendages that, are, that are overdeveloped, they really don't do any good if they're not a part of the body. So we said if you had a, a giant muscular arm just laying on the ground, it does no good. Uh, it has to be connected to the body and for it to do, um, to do its work as God intended it. And so um, 
in each individual relationship that exists, you know, is defined in many different ways. And Paul goes into some detail of that in, in chapter 5 when he starts talking about husbands and wives. And then in chapter 6 when he starts talking about children and slaves, so your workers, your, how you're in, as an employee and an employer and all those relationships that begin to develop out, um, out of the body. And so that's the idea. And so we also stated that the basis of this unity is a shared faith. And we hinted at this a little bit. It's centered around the work and the power of Christ, who is the head of the church. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit, and it's enacted by the perfect will of the Father. And what we, um, what we really kind of started to scratch the surface of, but didn't fully develop last week, was the means by which we may accomplish a worthy walk that pursues unity within the body of the church. And the means by which we accomplish this, and, and for me, what I um, understand of this, is an attitude of humility. It's an attitude of humility that allows us to approach our relationships, to approach our walk with, uh, in a manner worthy of the calling. Um, that has to be the means. And so let's look at Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 and see if you can find where I'm getting this attitude of humility. Remember, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 is our home base for this entire uh, four-week series. We'll go back to it at the beginning probably of each lesson. Um, But 4, 1 through 3 says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So that's where I'm getting this. And so then if humility is the means by which we approach our relationships that are founded in our shared faith in Christ, then the question arises, what do we have to be humble about? What is the status of our redeemed souls? What have we been saved from? What did it take to complete our transformation into these new creations? And what do we have in common with the other members of the body? I'm glad you asked. That's what I asked for you. In in an attempt to unpack this idea of humility, we're going to look... Here we go. We're going to look at, um, at a few big overarching theme. So the, the, the struggle in doing this is we've got six chapters in Ephesians that are absolutely jam-packed, and I'm doing a four-week flyby. So we're going to take some big chunks. So strap in, get ready to take some notes, have your fingers in your Bibles, um, because we're going to take some big chunks of Scripture, and we're going to look at it from really a 30,000-foot view. But remember, in this context of establishing a foundation of why should we be humble? And why should we think so lowly of ourselves and so highly of God, and that being the basis for our, our walk. And so we'll look at God's remarkable plan of redemption, we'll look at the magnitude of God's power, and we'll look at our new life in Christ. And so we're just going to jump right in. So if you would, turn your Bibles to, uh, to Ephesians 1. We're going to read 3 through 14 together, if you can follow along with me. Just so we are established, there's a lot in these 11 verses. So let's just jump in here. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now you see why I love Ephesians. I mean, if you need to give the gospel to somebody and you're stuck, just read that, right? Just read that. So the main idea here is that Paul has crafted this amazing expression of praise to God for his extraordinary plan of salvation. That's that chunk, his big plan. He sees this as a manifestation of God's glory and God's grace. And God imparts abundant blessings through the Spirit to all who are connected to Christ in a dynamic and a personal relationship. Not some ethereal, you know, uh, detached relationship with some, you know, Zeus or unknown God or whomever, but but in a dynamic and personal relationship. And I think that's critical. And before he created the world, God lovingly chose a people for himself and devised a way of freeing them from their enslavement to sin. And finally, one day, God will bring all of this rebellion, rebellious creation under the reign of Jesus Christ. All of that is packed into that, those thir- uh, 13 or 11 verses. Contrary to what some may think, and I know that's not a problem in this church, but a lot of folks think that, that, think that theology is sterile and dry, and, and Paul is taking the opposite here. He's saying, the, all the stuff I want you to do is grounded in theology. If you don't know who you are in Christ and what Christ has done for you, then there should be no expectation for you to walk in any sort of manner that, that it glorifies the Lord because you don't have any understanding. And so your, your pretext is something that's off, and so therefore you can never attain to it. So he starts where you should start. He starts in the beginning on the theology that happened really before the beginning. And so, according to Paul, theology is the life-changing truth that is essential to growth and sanctification. The truths that we just read should cause us to join with Paul in falling on our face in humility and praise to our awesome Savior. And it doesn't get said enough. You know, uh, I went to Shepherd's Conference years back, and we got this little pamphlet in there, the, the Gospel Primer. And the idea in that was we should be preaching the gospel to ourselves daily. And if you look at how Paul addresses almost every letter that he has written, there is beautiful, sound gospel presentation at the front end of almost every one of those. It was important to Paul, and it should be important to us because that's every exhortation he has and every letter he's written is based on what Christ has done. 
And that's the idea that we need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves daily so we don't get too high and mighty on ourselves. And so there's a number of truths to reflect on uh, stemming from these verses. So we're going to kind of unpack this a little bit. So the first thing here that we want to observe is that the sovereignty of God induces humility. The sovereignty of God induces humility. So there's one God who is sovereignly unfolding his plan for all creation that includes the redemption of humanity. That's the idea here. The sovereign will and plan of God are repeatedly stressed in this section. And I've listed some of these up here for you just so you can see his sovereignty just jumps out just in these verses. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He chose in one eleven. He predestined his good pleasure, making known to us the mystery of his will, a plan for the fullness of time, his counsel. So God's sovereignty is overwhelming in here. And the overall impact is that we can be assured that we're not left to some inescapable fate or the whim of some cosmic, you know, chess game among gods, as many times uh, these things are depicted. And, and certainly the Ephesians, who worshipped up to 50 gods, had no idea where to go. They just worshipped everything, you know, to hope they don't miss something. And a lot of these guys were still worshipping all these 50 gods and Christ. So it, it's, it's, what Paul is trying to do here is say, don't trust in anything else. And for us, our, our context would be don't trust in, in your money, don't trust in your job, don't trust in, your, in, your, um, in any of your own power. Trust in the sovereignty of God. It's taken care of. And that's the basis of it. All of us who are in Christ are planned and loved and chosen and pursued and included. Our future is bound up with the will of the one true God. That God chose us and predestined us before the world was created is an amazing statement. If we just stopped and left, that should induce humility to know that you were chosen before the foundation of the world. What an amazing truth to reflect on. When we feel the desire to exclude members of the body of Christ or choose our preferences over others or on and on and on and on, any selfish pursuit you might be able to think of that's unique to your own special way, think about that. Think about what God's sovereignty has meant for you. The second truth that we want to take a look at here is our election before creation induces humility, an extension of his sovereignty, but specifically his election. This section makes it clear that God sovereignly chose us before he made the heavens and the earth. There's two parallel sections here, and you know, there's folks out there who don't believe in predestination and election, and, uh, and Jim and Sarah and Ann and I were having a neat conversation the other evening that, that if you think that you choose, and we're talking about in the context of grace and how that can build up unity uh, if you are very gracious and how it can destroy unity if you have a lack of grace. And the idea we just came out of that conversation was neat because we said, okay, well, if you choose God, right, if that is how you get saved, as you make a choice to say, I'm going I'm to walk with God now, and that's, that's up to me, then by extension, anybody who doesn't do that, what do you think of them? You're an idiot, right? Why would you not choose God? You have all these promises. And so it almost kind of makes you look down your nose a little bit because, well, I made a great choice, so I'm pretty smart. 
and these guys didn't. And so, yeah, their drug addiction, their whatever, and their whatever really is their own fault. And so I'm washing my hands of them. But on the contrary, on election, you didn't do anything. You had no merit, no favor, no offer to bring to the table that, that gave you a right to your salvation. You weren't smart enough to choose him. And so that's where it's great when we take it in the context of humility is that you didn't do anything. So don't be high and mighty. Do everything you can to fall on your face before the sovereign God who chose you before the foundation of the world. And that's really where it, uh, where it stems from. And so the verses that deal with this specifically are so clear. So 1, 4 through 6, it's up there. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. And then 11 and 12 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And so we see here that the motivation for our election is God's love and God's love alone. It wasn't because you're great. The basis of it is expressed in, his, in the purpose of his will and the counsel of his will. And then the purpose is that he would have a people to unite all things to him. He's creating a body that will worship him, that will point to his glory, that will reflect his glory on earth, but also for eons and eternity to come. And that's the whole point. So you're just a part of that. And you get to be inherited, you get, you get the inheritance that it belongs to Christ himself. You haven't done anything for it. That is a great spot to start when you're thinking about how am I going to humbly approach my walk with the Lord and why would I ever do this? It's because he, you were sought after by God by, because of his love. God wants to encourage our hearts by helping us to not only see God's sovereignty, but his extraordinary love for us. And, and these truths should lead us to praise God, to thank him for his indescribable kindness to us and pouring out his grace on us. And so then the third truth um, here is that uh, this is the, still under the God's remarkable plan for salvation is the need for redemption induces humility. The need for redemption. And so it's veiled a bit in here, in 1.7, if you guys look at this, Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. There's a whole lot implied there. There's a lot implied there. A rupture has taken place in the creation that needs a resolution is what's implied there. Paul indicates that people have engaged in transgressions against the law of God from which they need forgiveness. And what this passage says about redemption presupposes that people have fallen into slavery or bondage of sin. If you, we're going to read this and go through this to some extent in a second, but turn real quick to me to 2, 1 through 3, if you would. 2, 1 through 3. And if I can get somebody to read that for me, nice and loud, I'd be grateful. Thanks, Jim.
Very good. And so we start to see a little bit of what Paul has in mind here. The trespasses that we have committed of which we need forgiveness for are founded in the fact that we just lived out the desires of our own flesh and that we were mortal enemies with God and that we walked joyfully, joyfully in many cases uh, like the rest of mankind. And so that's the, 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 what is implied in that, that small verse there in 7. So this understanding of the dire situation of humanity is at the heart of Paul's gospel. It establishes the need for Christ to die as a sacrifice on the cross. And I have a quote up here from Clinton Arnold um, that says, The suggestion here is that people have been stricken so deeply by the power of sin that they have become willing accomplices to its enticements and are unable to choose God in any objective, neutral way. And so this further highlights God's grace and favor by choosing people to be his own sons and daughters when we were delighting in our own sinful and self-centered pursuits. He met us at our greatest need. He didn't wait for us to have a good week. He met us, and if many of your testimonies, and on my own, my, the, the time that God met me was at my lowest point. And that's, and that's a gracious father. Um, and so the idea there is we need to understand you weren't good. Even some of you that have been in the church your whole life and you say, well, you know, I didn't do all the stuff that Nate did. You know, you know, you did. You were that bad. It's just different. Maybe it wasn't outward. It wasn't open in your heart. It was all those things you were walking in your own pursuits, your own selfishness, just like the rest of mankind, carrying out the desires of your flesh as two, one through three we're just talking about. And so understanding that, that your need for redemption should be the basis for your humility as well. And then many of us who have uh, a, a testimony that occurred after we'd gone and done a bunch of really bad stuff, um, it's really easy to, to forget that. And that's where preaching the gospel to yourself uh, 15 and 20 and 30 years after you've been saved is so vital because that is where you start, remembering that God met you at your greatest need. And so then we have next Jesus' preexistence and revelation induces humility. Christ preexisted with the Father, and, and he's now been revealed as the means of redemption and the source of, of any intimacy that we can expect from God. We see here that the Father in eternity past was not alone, which is neat, but he jointly planned with Christ the redemption of humanity. This plan involved making Christ the means of the atonement by his death and then the means of the relationship that we have with God now. And Paul says this because he emphasizes in Christ 11 times in just 12 verses. 11 times in Christ. A major theme of this section that we could just really hone in on if we weren't just focusing on humility as a basis here. But if we looked at just the theme of our participation in Christ, how are we participating with him? In his death in his resurrection, in his ascension, uh, that we're to be present position of, our present position of power and authority are at the right hand of God that he is mediating for us. And because of this identification with the victorious Christ at the right hand of God, those of us who are in Christ have a power for living our lives of obedience. 
and engaging in, in spiritual warfare, which Paul's going to go on and talk about in 6, 10 through 20, that, that in that armor of God section where he says, now go do battle, it's, it's based on all these truths in one, that we are bound up in Christ. Otherwise, we have nothing. The spiritual armor is a bunch of clanky metal that doesn't really do anything at all. And so it's in Christ that that power is, is um, brought to fruition. In Christ here also refers to the closeness and unity with Christ that we have, who, oops, who cherishes us, oh, sorry guys, nourishes us, provides for us, and provides us with direction. And the thing that I really like about this not this, not the microphone, but this wasn't even your fault, James. This was just totally my own weird jacket, I guess. The idea here is that, you know, look, God's big, right? His plan is immense, and we forget that sometimes. There's a book that I read back in the day that is um, when, when God is small and we're big, and, and you, you forget, like, your whole right here gets so built up in your own mind, you forget that there is a humongous God with a, with a blueprint for the salvation of mankind and for all of his creation that is just immense. And if we're truly in Christ, then that allows us to be unified with Christ and it just expands your understanding of who you are. Do a deep study on Christology sometime and see all the ways that Christ has been a part of this narrative. That he was the angel of the Lord. When you talk about a Christophany, right? His appearance that before his uh, incarnation, he came and, and uh, he was there guarding the, the burning bush. That he was there uh, showing himself throughout um, eternity past or I mean before the creation of the world that the whole creation was done through him and that when he came to rescue us that he was the one who willfully came down and, and submitted to God the Father and that he was the one who died and after living a perfect life he was the one that, that prayed till he sweat blood he was the one who died on the cross and he was the one who resurrected and ascended and sits on the right hand of God and he's going to be the one who comes back on his horse and destroys all of his enemies and establishes a kingdom forever and we're a part of all of that and when it gets that big you start saying okay this week really let's put it into context right you know this thing that is unraveling in my life let's put it into context or this puffed up pride and, uh, and lack of humility that causes me just to be a jerk. Let's put that in a context. And that's the idea. That's the idea. And so do a deep dive on, on uh, uh, Christology at some point. I taught that in our youth group uh, over a summer a couple years back, and it was mind-blowing how much Christ has been there all along. It didn't just happen on Christmas. It was amazing to see it all unfolding from eternity past to eternity future. Uh, the next thing here we have in this section, the last one, uh, is the role of the Spirit induces humility. And so the Spirit imparts God's blessing to us, making us as belonging to God. 
and assuring us of our future with him. This section begins and ends with the Spirit of God, and we saw Christ as the central figure of the plan who secures our redemption and mediates our relationship to God. But the Spirit, and never forget about the Spirit, now is seen as the agent who bestows the blessings on the people that God has redeemed. Everything that you enjoy now comes from the Spirit. Don't forget to thank Him every once in a while, right? Or all the time. Because He is just as much God as Christ is or the Father is. Verse 13 and 14 says, We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And I love this because um, without the Spirit's seal, you know, it's not... You know, we think of things as being a done deal, and they are. But it's only a done deal because of the power of God. It's not like you are um, completely perfect now, right? It's not like you are still committing sin just like you did before you were saved. It's not that you're righteous now. And so there is work happening now that secures that. And so we say it, and Paul says it's a done deal, because it is a done deal, but only because God's power is so great that he is keeping you held. He is reserving you. And the Spirit is the one doing that reserving. MacArthur says it really well, and I love it. And just in his notes, in their study Bible, you can all read it. God's own Spirit comes to indwell the believer and secures and preserves his eternal salvation. The sealing of which Paul speaks refers to an official mark of identification placed on a letter, contract, or other document. That document was thereby officially under the authority of the person whose stamp was on the seal. So the king has a signet ring and seals it in wax, then it carries all the weight of the king, whatever's in that document. That's what he's talking about. And there's four primary truths, MacArthur goes on to say, that signify the seal. Security, authenticity, ownership, and authority. And the Holy Spirit is given by God as his pledge of the believer's future inheritance and glory. And so the Holy Spirit is sealing you for your redemption, but he's also the one making it available to have access to the power of God to do all the things that Paul is going to tell us to do and to, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And so the fact that we have this agent that helps us and secures us should induce humility because why? You're not doing anything. Your role is to reflect the glory of God, to grow in your sanctification, and give the gospel to other people. You are a soldier in his kingdom, but you're not doing anything to work out your salvation in terms of the big picture of it. And that should induce humility because God's doing all the work. And so again, I'll ask the question, who are you to hold on to your petty stuff against another believer and cause disunity when God's doing all of this on our own behalf? That's the idea. And so our next big chunk here is um, 19 through 23. And really, this is the magnitude of God's power. And I love this section because it really just talks about how little we are, and how great God is. So the magnitude of God's power. So would somebody care to read that section for me, 19 through 23? 
Thank you, Ann. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him Wonderful. Thank you. And so this section is found within an overall prayer that, that Paul is lifting up of, of thanksgiving and intercession, where he's expressing gratitude to God after hearing of the spiritual um, liveliness or vitality of the Ephesian church members. Um, this leads him to pray intensively that the Spirit will reveal to these believers their hope and great value to God, and then he really wants them to understand and appreciate and have an expanded awareness of the extraordinary and unsurpassed power of God manifested on their behalf. So important is this point that Paul illustrates this, this power of God by reciting how he has manifested his power in the person of Christ, in Jesus Christ, during his messianic role on earth. And so, although Jesus died on the cross, God brought his body back to life. He exalted Jesus to a position of status and authority and power right next to him where he had been before he came and stepped out of eternity. He has subjected to, uh, to Christ every supernatural enemy. He says Christ is reigning sovereignly over all the universe and this has special significance to the church since the living and exalted Christ is in a relationship of solidarity with his people, with his body, remembering that he is the head over the body of church. So he is the head of our church. So this great Christ is the one we have direct access to. And his central concern here is for the Holy Spirit to expand their awareness of God's power that is available to them. And that's what I'm trying to do for you is expand your awareness of God's power available to you as I encourage you, as Paul did, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, aiming towards unity. We need to understand God's power is available to us now, but we also need to grasp the, the reality of our future hope. And these truths are revealed by the Spirit and allow us to do battle with our flesh, as Paul says later in 3.16 and 5.18, to love, to desist from sinful behavior, and to acquire virtue. Paul says in Romans 8.13, it is by the Spirit that believers put to death the misdeeds of the body. And so when I ask you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, I say I ask you only because Paul asked you, but when I'm pointing you to, to that, understand every time that you try to do things under your own power, look back over your life, how well has that gone? For me, not real well. It's only after I've been humbled and broken and I've and I tried nine different ways and failed that God says, are you ready? Are you ready to listen now? Because we'll go, I got all day. Right? Well, I'll go as long as it takes to break you. And then when you start trusting in the Spirit, as Paul says in 8.13, it's by the Spirit that believers put to death the misdeeds of the body. And so what's the application of this, of this section here? 
It's that we should pray regularly that we, that we and fellow believers will be enabled by the Spirit to understand the vastness of God's power. And, and you don't really get that until you spend time in God's Word and you spend time on your knees before Him. Um, and that's where that comes out. And that's a, that's a task item for myself, is to spend more time in prayer just focusing on God's power. We all struggle with the tendency to live the Christian life in our own power and not by God's. And so the good news of this passage is that God does intervene. He does involve himself with us in our life. And the intercessory prayer for one another, is this still coming through okay? It's okay, okay. Intercessory prayer for one another is a vital practice that builds up unity, and it's a tool God uses to mediate his incredible power in our lives to accomplish his purposes. And so as we think of the bigger context of walking in a manner worthy of the calling and and saying a special emphasis on unity, well, then not only are you praying for your own desire to understand God's power, but you, like Paul, are praying for everybody else in this room and in our church and in your life to understand the power of God. And you're praying for that. We're praying for Ben to understand the power of God to hold his wife in uh, heaven now and to securely bring her home. We know it's happening, but when you're in the middle of a trial, do you see clearly all the time? No, so we ask God to grant that to Ben so he sees it, so that the boys see that, so that the kids have an understanding. The grandkids have a, a small understanding maybe of the power of God to bring their grandma home safely that when we have trials in here and we know of trials that are happening in other people's lives, that we are praying on their behalf, not that the whole thing will be done easy and and neat, because that's rarely how it goes. But in this context, Paul's saying, pray for them so they understand the power of God that's accessible to them right now, so they don't have to be on their own. I'm praying for some of you in that same way after studying through this. Um, and what's really neat, and here's always a neat byproduct of praying for somebody else, is it encourages you too, right? So that's a neat thing. So God does care. He does involve himself in our lives. Just as a, uh, you know, what Paul brings to light in this section, I thought was really neat of throughout the letter of Ephesians, Paul shows that God's power can enable believers to do a number of things. And so I've listed them up here, and I think it's kind of cool to see it all listed out as it corresponds to the text. So he um, enables believers to resist the power and influence of demonic spirits in 6.12, to accomplish good works in 2.10, to overcome ethnocentrism and live in unity with others different from themselves in the church. Look, I'm an opinionated guy. I like things done the way I like things done. It's great to know that I have the power to not just see things through my own lens if I ask God to help me. That's a good thing for me. It's a good thing for all y'all too, just so we're all being clear. Um, Develops patience and humility and gentleness in 4, 2 through 3. God's power... Uh, allows us to have less self-centeredness and live in a way that reflects the self-sacrificial love of Christ for the benefits of other people. His power enables us to serve the body of Christ in accordance with our giftedness. According to our giftedness. Um, To get rid of ungodly practices like sexual immorality, greed, lying, 
anger and rage, stealing, dirty talk, and alcohol abuse. In case you're trying to duck out, next week will be the time to duck out if you're struggling with any of these because we're going to hit all that hard on the put off and put on section that really talks about walking in a manner worthy of the calling. Um, But the good news here is that God's power gives you an opportunity to have victory over those things. Do it on your own. Try it. It won't work very well. Do it in God's power. It works remarkably well. And then lastly, to develop healthy and Christ-centered family relationships when we look at the different roles that are expressed between five and six. And so that's what God's power allows us to do. It's a pretty comprehensive list, and that's just in Ephesians. You expand that out into Romans and into Revelation and into all the Old Testament where you see God's power working mightily across this whole redemptive plan. It's pretty incredible. It's pretty incredible. You can go back in the Old Testament and you can wag your head at those Jews who are just so hard-headed and then remember that you are just like them. And that same God that is working in their lives is working in your life, that's disciplining you, that's bringing sin to the forefront of your mind so that you can repent of it, just like he did back then. It's the same God. Okay, and the next section here is my favorite section. I like this section. I think I might have jumped it a little too early. I gave that away, but I'll leave it up there. Um, So our last section is 2, 1 through 10. And this, uh, we're going to take a look at real quick. I'm going to read it if you'll follow along with me. Our new life in Christ. And you were dead in in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying on the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so this is the diving board. This is the starting block that Paul is really going to uh, use to really emphasize and for to stop doing that junk you did before you were saved and start walking like the, the man of God or the woman of God that you are now as you are alive in Christ. But for now, as it relates to humility and why would these truths cause us to approach our life in a sphere of humility, let's take a look at it. So this section contrasts the horrible plight that we all had before our experience of Christ, our salvation, and it, and it talks about our new life in Christ that we have now. This can only be described as passing from death to life by participation with Christ in his resurrection and exaltation. That's why the, um, 
the idea of baptism is so beautiful because you're, you're putting on display the truth that he's talking about right here. This salvation is a gift of God and enables us to live the lives God has called us to live. This whole passage could be summed up, summed up and organized around the contrast of life before Christ in 2, 1 through 2, and then the new life we have in Christ, which is found in 4 through 9. And Paul identifies, I have it up here, three forms of evil influences that once controlled your life and mine, resulting in our condition of spiritual deadness and our bondage to sin. And so those three things are, uh, somebody want to read those out for me? Somebody just yell them out. The world, what else, guys? Thank you. Just making sure you guys are all awake and with me. The world, the devil, and the flesh. He concludes this section by indicating our liability to God. Liability to God's wrath, rather, because of the character of how we lived. And he says that we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Our destination, our line that we were standing in because of our association with the world, the flesh, and the devil, was that of wrath of eternal damnation. And he can, um, and then after painting this horribly bleak picture of our own sin, our own death, our own bondage, and God's impending wrath, a bright ray of hope shines forth in this section. And many people have said the, some of the two most beautiful words in all of Scripture are, What? But God, you were in this line. You were destined for the worst. You were doing the worst in your heart, if not actually. But God rescues us. But God, the central point of this message is that God made us alive. And this can only be fully appreciated and understood if we first know the full extent of our predicament prior to God's graciousness and his action toward us. We have to know what we did that offended God so vilely. Otherwise, you're not going to be humble. You're going to be like, ah, I can see why God chose me. Right? I get it. I'm not that bad. No, most of our testimonies revolve around what did we repent of? What are the, the horrible things that our life consisted of? And then... God's graciousness towards us. And almost every person that gets in here and gets baptized has a but God statement that's unique to their own circumstances. Some are big contrasts and some are subtle. Some are a shark story like Reese's. But in that, in the, in the middle of that is a but God. And that's a beautiful thing. And we do well to dwell not on a lamenting, but we do well to, to dwell a little bit on who we were before God because that drives us to our knees in thankfulness. And that's really important because that's what Paul does. Paul says, I was a chief among sinners. He was a Jew of Jews, but in his heart, he knew he was the chief among sinners. He had an appreciation of what he was before Christ. And then what drives him to be so focused on the Lord and his kingdom and other believers and unity and 
theology and doctrine and the salvation of other Jews and Gentiles, all that driving knowledge is knowing what Christ did for him. And so you can't help but to to, give it to everybody else. And so the theology of this passage that we just read and the relevance for the Ephesians and for us is expressed in five observations. We're going to have to hustle through this. The first one, the first observation is that we have a new life in Christ that, and that humanity is trapped in bondage. So we have to know that humanity is trapped in bondage. So, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and in the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. That was all of us, every one of us, have that in common right now. The world, the devil, and the flesh are three forces that together form this inescapable bond or this death trap that keeps humanity from God and on a daily path of sin in thought and in conduct. And so just to kind of define these things for us, what is the world? It's the unhealthy, ungodly, this is according to Arnold, unhealthy and ungodly social, cultural, and economic and political environment we live in. This is organized evil in the form of peer pressure, ideologies, systems, and structures that provide us with a script for living life totally apart from God and his purposes. I love his definition of the world there. That is it. And we all walk in it every day. And we're mucked up by it and we're mired by it. We're attracted to it sometimes because we still have this old man living in us. And that old man is comprised of what? The flesh. So what is the flesh? That's the inner propensity inclination to do evil. That's the inner man that says, that looks pretty good. I want a 5,000 square foot house and a couple Porsches and I want that gal or I want that guy and I want all these things the world has to offer forgetting everything that we just talked about in the whole redemptive plan of history and that God has in store for you. We just forget that. Because why? There's a nice shiny thing to go run after and Satan is pleased as punch to have you distracted for a little while and be completely ineffective for God's kingdom. And then the last thing, the devil, the ruler of the realm of the air. Uh, what is this? This is an intelligent, powerful spirit being who is thoroughly evil and intent on perpetrating as much evil as possible. What does First Peter remind us of when he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is a present being who does work and you you are in a fight, okay? Sometimes some of us get punched in the head and we didn't even know we were in a fight. You should know you're in a fight. It's like boxing. They say, you know, protect yourself at all times. You're in a fight. You're in the ring. And if you don't know it, you're already one step behind. And Paul's gonna hit that hard in the spiritual armor piece. And so that, those are those three things that are trapping us or did trap us in, uh, in bondage. And so the next thing, the next observation we want to see here is that God is full of mercy, love, and grace. Thank goodness. 
right? Given the pervasiveness of sin and the prevalence for all of us to do evil, um, one would not blame God for wiping out the entirety of his creation. He did it once. You kind of get it, right? When the flood happens, you say, man, that's bad. Like the angels are coming down and they're doing horrible things with people and, and it's just all horrible. And we sometimes say, God, just start over. Just wipe it out. Take me to heaven. Whatever your thought process is on that, you really couldn't blame God. We're so bad. But this is not the full character of God's picture. We see in here, but God, that he is so rich in mercy and full of love, abounding in grace and possessing the heart of kindness. That is the full, well-rounded view of God. In Christ, he made a way of escape from the compelling influence of those forces of evil we just talked about. He bestowed new life on us. And this is an entirely a gift of grace rooted in his kindness. We saw that because he predestined us before. He did it according to his own love. Because we were dead in our sin, there's no initiative or merit on our part that we could pursue. Because you were dead. How many dead people do you see accomplishing anything? You don't. They're dead. Right? And that was you. You were spiritually dead. It's just simply received by faith. And here's the crazy thing that he says in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So guess what? You didn't even do the faith part. God gave you the faith. He did everything. So don't come to a relationship or don't come to your walk or come to your fight against Satan or come to your fight against your sin thinking you have anything. And that's the idea here. Be humble. You didn't even have the faith that you have. God gave it to you. It's all him. It's all his love, all his grace, all his initiative. This truth must form the basis of our humility. If nothing else, that should. But there's more. We participate in Christ's power and authority. So, you know, not only did he go and, and, and rescue us from the streets, rescue us from our destiny, he didn't just like put us in the basement like they did for uh, the Harry Potter kid, you know, and stick him under the, the stairs. They gave us the best room in the house. We are heirs with Christ. Salvation is more than forgiveness of sins. It entails a participation in Christ's power and authority over the forces of evil. This is where our embodiment of being able to go and do battle and have some expectation of winning against a force like Satan himself is because we participate in Christ's power. And although salvation involves forgiveness of sins, Paul here emphasizes it's also a liberation from the powers that once determined our lives. We're liberated. We're no longer slaves to our sin. We participate in the resurrection and exaltation of Christ. That is no joke. That is what we have. We are with him. Being in Christ means that we've experienced the relationship with Christ in all of these key events. All of them. And this passage serves as an important basis that Paul will use to exhort us to stand firm in the face of attacks from the evil one, again in 6, 10 through 20. And look, we have to live a virtuous life. 
2, 7 through 10 talks about this. Because he has broken the power of the various forces inclining us to do evil, God has called us to live out our daily lives in a manner consistent with his holy and righteous character. If he's done all these things that we just talked about and we're his and we've been freed and we're now slaves to him and not slaves to our own fleshly desires and the, and the wrath that was coming because of that, then we have to live out our lives in a way that reflect his righteous character. It lays the groundwork this section does for the ethical admonitions that we're going to look at in great detail next week. And so I need you to remember these things. Lock them in there somewhere because we're going to talk about the put off and put on in some detail next week. And this is the basis for your worthy walk. This is the basis for this whole study is this truth that we have to live a a virtuous life based on everything that God has done for us. And we're on display to the glory of God. His salvation puts on display the wonders of his grace forever. Just as he told Roman believers, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And if anybody has kids in here, you can relate to this. The lives and conduct of our children reflect on us as parents, do they not? If you are this, you know, high and mighty, very dignified man, and your kid's going around smacking old ladies and, and, you know, and running around and being crazy and tripping folks, then they say, well, something's missing there, right? There's, there's a disconnect between how he's pres- presenting himself and, and how his family is. And on some extent, that child's behavior reflects on the parent. Our lives are a living canvas that portrays the glory of our creator and our redeemer. And it also says, how important do we think that stuff really is? Because if we aren't even in the fight, if we aren't even trying to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, what does that say about God the Father? What does that say for unbelievers when we say, I want to tell you about Christ and what he did for you. And they say, yeah, Really? Because you don't really have anything I desire to have in my life because your life looks a lot like mine. And it looks a little less fun because you can't go do all the things I like to do on Saturday night. You got to get up early on church on Sunday, so no thanks. That's the idea is that we are acting out how important we we think this stuff is. Not only for unbelievers, which is huge, but in this context, for unity among other believers as well. And um, so we have this conclusion here. We've looked at several ideas from the first two chapters here. We looked at God's remarkable plan of redemption in one thirteen, uh, 3 through 14, rather. The magnitude of God's power that's available to us to have victory over sin. And then our new life in Christ, what God did but God taking you from your destination uh, or your destiny of, of wrath and giving you new life. And so now, just as a rhetorical, you know, we'll revisit these questions I posed at the beginning. What do we have to be humble about? What is our status now as redeemed souls? What have we been saved from? What did it take to complete our transformation into new creations? What do we have in common with the other members of the body? That last one, what do we have in common? Everything. We might not have social, economic, 
unity or in commonality rather. We might not have skin color commonality. We might not have the same type of um, background, but we have everything we just talked about for the last hour in common. And so the way in which we answer these questions will form the basis of how we view ourselves in the body of the church. If we agree that Paul's calling us to be unified as we walk in a manner worthy of our calling, then the basis for that unification, I contend, must be humility. It has to be. Knowing that we bring nothing to our relationships other than sin and brokenness. And understanding that it was God who called us, saved us, and sealed us. And it is God who continues to maintain us, strengthen us, and sustain us. It's all by Him. And so this knowledge of the amazing work done by God on our behalf will be what serves as the motivation for the list of put-offs and put-ons that Paul exhorts us to in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And as I mentioned before, we'll look at that in some detail next week. Some of the applicational, stop doing this, start doing that. And it's great because it's simple. And you guys are all doing some of it. And if you have victory over parts of it, you say, thank you, praise God. And the parts that you don't have victory over yet, you're going to stop doing that. That's the idea anyway. So in that, we'll do that. We'll pray for God's power in that for one another in here. Um, So let's go to the Lord in prayer. We're a couple minutes over. I apologize. Lord God, thank you for this time that we could be be together in your word. Lord, thank you for the remarkable work you've done in our lives. Thank you that you knew us before the foundations of the earth. Thank you that you had a plan before the foundation of the earth. Before Adam ever sinned, you knew what your plan was. You and Christ and the Holy Spirit, all the three manifestations of your character, Lord, have been together and knowing exactly what was going to happen throughout all of eternity, past and eternity, future. It's an amazing thing that we're a part of that, that we're these these, uh, pieces within your big uh, plan. And not pawns, not not, uh, inconsequential blocks being moved around, but vital pieces of your ministry. And and, and you loved us so much that you got, gave us the opportunity to be a part of that. All those things, Lord, rescuing us from our life of sin and, and, and dishonor and disobedience and rebellion against you and making us fellow heirs and participating with Christ's uh, death and resurrection and ascension. And we even get to participate in his takeover when he comes back down and reclaims the earth. We get to be there. That's amazing. And we didn't do anything to deserve it. And so thank you for that. And let that cause us to be humble before you and humble with our relationships and walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you called us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks, you guys. I appreciate the time this morning.